Hello and welcome to the Alt Book Club podcast, the online spin-off from the Literary Comedy Night. I'm your host, Shirley Hulse, and today we are joined by Alt Book Club legend. He's a comedian and an author. It's Mr. James Crawley. Hi, James. How are you? Hi, Shirley. I'm good. All the, all the better for being called a legend. That always improves my day. Yeah, especially in lockdown. Absolutely. I am a lockdown legend, if nothing else. How are you? I am all right, but I think tired of everything, as everyone is. How has this like billionth lockdown been treating you? It's okay. It's an improvement on last year's because I've moved to Liverpool. And although I haven't really been able to go into Liverpool yet, I live in a bigger house. So that's nice. How long have you been living there now and not been to actual Liverpool? Um, I've been here since end of September. Trapped so, in your own house. Yeah, pretty much. You know, there's a nice park nearby and such. But the only time we went into Liverpool was when we arrived by the train. Oh my gosh. Okay, so, well, it's a bit more exciting than Cheltenham. At least you know that there's something bigger happening Or there's, there's stuff going on nearby, yeah. How, mm. That's exciting, I agree. How are you finding the house? Nice. The house is great. Um, it's cold here. It was minus two today. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm from the south. I grew up on the Isle of Wight. That's as south as you can get in the mm. UK. And I was not ready for how cold the north is. That sounds tough. I literally today, it was zero degrees or minus one outside. I've got chickens now and they've got like a kind of red bit on the top of them. It's called a crown. Yeah. And I had to put Vaseline on the top of them. It's like the weirdest hairstylist. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, What are you going to be talking about today? I'm going to be talking about my 2020 in books. My 2020 in books had a theme and a reason. Prior to explaining, I'll just briefly share how my brain works with regards to books, at least how my brain enjoys books, shall we say. So I'll get really into a type of book or an author in a very passionate but often temporary experience. So I'll read seven Terry Pratchett books in a couple of months and then not read any more of his work for two years. Other types of genres that I've gotten into include like light investigative journalism, or human experience stories like John Ronson and Danny Wallace and Dave Gorman. I'll get very into them for a short period of time. Or I'll go on a big biography binge, the finest of which, for me, is Cash by Johnny Cash, which is a very meandering story of like an old man sitting on his porch just telling you, oh, that reminds me of this time I was in Arkansas, and I was coming down off the drugs, and I thought I was in the military again. Which, incidentally, by the way, is Rob Gordon's favourite book, the main character from Nick Hornby's High Fidelity. A fun fact for you. Mm. Well, at at least it is in the film. I haven't read the book. Which brings me to the theme of my 2020 in books, an accidental theme at that. It was mainly books that are films. I did a film degree. I'm very much a film guy. I didn't realise it was a theme at the time. I didn't understand why this was the theme. Or the reason of my 2020 reading. But in retrospect, I've done enough self-reflection and been through enough therapy over the years to trust my subconscious wants. And so I followed the urge of reading these books. And I'm going to share a few highlights with you. One of them was the novel No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy, which was released in 2005. And the film was released in 2007. It's one of my favorite films. And often people who love the film will say the book is amazing. It is if you like the film at least. It's quite an existential tale of a man on the run 
and the ominous presence of the character hunting him down and the sheriff trying to keep up, all set in Texas and Mexico in the 1980s. Quite often, uh, snobby filmmakers will say, like, the, uh, the best way to adapt a novel is uh, completely rewrite it. You'll hear them go like, we threw the novel out. We just threw it out. This book and film is like novel, script, film, word for word the same. It's unbelievable how they've managed to do this. It's extraordinarily similar. And I was reading, and I kept thinking like, well, this scene can't be the same coming up in the gas station, which if you're familiar with either, you'll get. It can't possibly, it is. It is exactly the same. How have they done this? But it actually makes complete sense that it's very similar because McCarthy wrote it as a screenplay. He couldn't get it made into a film, so he just rewrote it as a book. I wish I had solutions, simple solutions to my problems such as that. I'd give you a word of warning that both the film and the book are incredibly violent and the themes of hopelessness, godlessness, and change for the worse may not be for you, especially in current situation. It has a sort of lack of conclusion to it that some find frustrating or unbearable. My dad hated the film so much that he gave me his DVD after he watched it. Literally, I'm never watching that again. Pretentious. Waste of my time. But if you like gritty characters and shootouts, this could be the book for you. Or the film for you, if you like seeing Tommy Lee Jones's amazing face. One of the few changes uh, from book to film is the book has a that's what she said joke in... <laughs> which they removed from the film entirely. And I assume it was because of the popularity of the American office. And it was sort of so mainstream at that point. And it was effectively a catchphrase in that, that they thought, we can't, we can't put this in a serious film. But anyway, I recommend both. I also took my first foray into the writing of Stephen King, who has more adaptations of his work into films than any other writer. I've really struggled to get into Stephen King's books and, and even the films because they're scary. Or I find it very hard to accept that Stephen King, a writer from Maine, has a protagonist who is a writer from Maine. Again, every time. So I read Stephen King's Different Seasons, which is a collection of novellas. It contains Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which became the Shawshank Redemption. Apt Pupil, which became Apt Pupil, starring Ian McKellen. The Body, which became Stand By Me, and The Breathing Method, which is in development now, or it was pre-COVID-19. I'll do a little mini review of each in a weird order. The Body is very similar to the film that it becomes, Stand By Me. Four boys go in search of a dead body. It's about their loss of innocence and the experience of the journey. Uh, it's Gordy Lachance's story, who is, ah uh, yes, a writer from Maine who is looking back at an event from his early teens, following learning that his childhood friend, Chris, has died. Uh, that sounds very bleak. Like I said, it's about the loss of innocence, so that makes sense. The film, um, when I saw it, was quite a formative experience at 13, because it's about 13-year-olds, and they talk like they're actually 13. The book does have more tangents than the film, with excerpts from the fictional writer's other works which do feel very odd. It's almost like Stephen King is going, hey, I can write like this. Isn't it weirdly pulpy? Well, now I've stopped. It was only a chapter. Back to the story about the writer from Maine. But both the novella and the film are enjoyable. At the time the film was made, in 1986, directed by Rob Reiner, who would go on to make When Harry Met Sally, and he'd produced Seinfeld, and even more things that he created, including appearing as Jess's dad in the sitcom New Girl, 
Woohoo. Stephen King, at this time that it was made, said it was the best adaptation of his work after a private screening that Rob Reiner held for him. And uh, I heartily recommend the film, first and foremost, for fans of Will Wheaton, hello tabletop fans, Corey Feldman, hello Gremlins fans, and Jerry O'Connell. I don't know what Jerry O'Connell's done since, really. But most of all, River Phoenix is in it, who is Wacken Phoenix's older brother, who really sadly died in the early 90s. He plays Chris, and he's as good as any child actor has ever been in this film. He's incredibly good. And I do also recommend this section of the novella. However, also in the collection is Apt Pupil, which I'll be brief on. Here's the synopsis. A teenager discovers a Nazi war criminal living in his town, in Maine, by the way, under a new identity, and he blackmails him into telling him about his experiences in the war. Then he becomes a serial killer, and then he goes on a mass shooting. It is the most uncomfortable fictional story I have read. I skipped large parts because they were so like horrible to read, which I guess you have to give him credit for that that is kind of the point, but I didn't really like it at all. I haven't seen the film of this one, and I'm not going to. I'm going to tear out that section of the book and give it to my dad. I'm just say, never read that again, waste of time. The final novella in the collection is The Breathing Method, and in homage to the film not getting round to being made yet, I haven't made it to getting round to reading it. <laughs> I was I was so happy after reading the body and I felt like it could go that way or it could go the apt pupil way. Do I risk it? I don't know. Message me to let me know if I should bother. Uh, and of, of course, the first in the collection, like I said, I was doing this in a weird order, is Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which goes on to be the much loved The Shawshank Redemption, where Morgan Freeman narrated his way into the hearts of film lovers across the world. The narrator of the book, who is played by Morgan Freeman in the film, is Red. An Irish-American serving a life sentence in Shawshank Prison, a prison in Maine. And of course, this was a really big change for the film, as Morgan Freeman is not Irish. It's also really glossed over in the film how much of a murderer he is, whereas in the book, he sits quite comfortably in the I did a very bad murder, deal with it category. But in both cases, he's telling the story of Andy Dufresne, a man who is wrongly convicted. Or is he? Ooh. Anyway, without spoiling either, read it, watch it, it's great, because despite its bleak setting and some real traumatic moments, it's a very hopeful story that I could analyse for hours, but not without massively spoiling it. So the predominant theme was books that are films, but the reason I realised for my reading habits in 2020 were twofold. Firstly, it was anti-snobbery, because quite often I'll feel like bad that I'm not reading higher brow novels. But in the nature of the year, I thought, I don't really care. I'm going to read what I feel like reading. I've also been a huge snob about films and comedy and music and maybe even books in the past. But if you enjoy something and it harms no one, then I guess it's fine. If you want to watch Fast and the Furious 7 or Michael McIntyre or listen to Mumford and Sons, then go for it, I suppose. Book snobbery is even weirder, though, because... Reading is usually a solitary experience, so it affects literally no one other than you, and much less than these other art forms. Yes, comedy is an art. And secondly, it was for comfort. I know the adverts at the end of 2020 were saying, oh, you've done really well this year, homeschooling the kids and one day of exercise with Joe Wicks, staying in sanitized masks. You've earned your McCain's oven chips. But as comforting as I find those Sean Bean-esque voiceovers, 
I found it more comfortable to hunker down with something familiar, which is why when tales are told of the year that was 2020, and people ask, well, what you know, content did you put out online? You'll find that I was actually just reading the novelization of the movie Aliens. That's the end of my, uh, should I say, rant? <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, I have not seen any of these movies or read any of these books. That's great. Probably for similar reasons that you had said that you hadn't read Stephen King, I have always assumed it would be far too scary for me. Yeah. So I've seen The Shining and it's scary. My brothers are really into the novels and they're really scary. That's like not my bag at all. What changed your mind? What made you go, I'm, I can deal with really scary things this year? Well, these ones are not scary. <laughs> Oh, okay. So I've I've purposely chose his books that are not horror. Mm. Um, although there might be elements of frightening or intense scenes, as warnings would say, they're not out and out horror. I've never really been able to get into a horror book. There are very few horror films that I've watched as well. I saw mm. The Exorcist when I was about 16, I think. And it was just like, even though I was 16, I slept with the light on for like a month. It was mm. horrendous. Did you have to watch any for your degree? Yeah, I did actually. I watched a horror film called Cannibal Holocaust. Which oh is, God, which, like two horrible words yeah, put together. Which, which is as horrible as it sounds. Mm. It was one of the, there was a series of films in the 70s that were called The Video Nasties. And they were banned at the time, but people mm. could get them on VHS. And it was sort of like an underground sort of exciting, oh, we've got this film from Italy called Suspiria or something like that. And they were always really gruesome. So they are historically significant. And the Cannibal Holocaust one, the director was investigated that he didn't actually genuinely just kill some of the cast. He had to literally bring them in front of a jury and go, no, they're still alive. Here they are. Oh, it's really, really scary how like thin that line is between fiction and reality. Yeah. I know lots of people watch these kind of movies or read these kind of books and they are like really able to separate it, you know, like to distinguish between that and reality. Whereas I remember reading Lord of the Rings and these Dark Riders or the Night Riders. I can't remember what it was. I have not come, gone back to it, but the, the Dark Riders came down and I knew that they were coming down my street. I just never had that like ability to kind of separate reality. They're genuinely scary for like what has essentially become like a family film is like actually kind of horrific the the dark riders but i also i didn't have a tv when i was growing up so i found everything unbelievably scary because it was all new and actually like you forget how real tv is i remember being scared by the weasels in wind in the willow which is like it's objectively a kid's film yeah i i mean you've lost me there i didn't find them scary <laughs> written by stephen king the yeah. weasels <laughs> What kind of got you started on the books that are films kind of genre this year? So I didn't like consciously go, I'm going to read books that are films. But I realised that afterwards, I think it was, I found it quite hard to get into a number of books this year. Like I tried to read another mm -hmm. Terry Pratchett. Sorry, this year just gone. I tried to read another Terry Pratchett and couldn't really get into it. And I read other things, but they were quite often like about like famous sports teams and stuff like that which is essentially just facts and interviews. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. Um, don't get me wrong. But I, I didn't consciously do it. I just sort of went, oh, I've sort of always wanted to read the novel No Country for Old Men and had a wealth of time to do so. And while I'm doing it, oh, also Different Seasons has, you know, there's two of those films that I really love. Maybe I should check that out too. But it wasn't like consciously... 
going to read these books that are films. I think it was subconsciously, it felt comfortable and easy to read. Mm, That's really interesting because I think you mentioned snobbery at the end. And I think there's a lot of snobbery or I've always felt a lot of snobbery about reading books before films. But actually often watching the movie or watching the TV series is a good way to get into the book. I remember feeling the same about the 1995 Pride and Prejudice. What you were saying about No Country for Old Men being practically lifted from the book. I then read Pride and Prejudice and instead of finding it difficult and old and alienating as a teenager, I was like, oh. This is a TV show I've already seen. Yeah, it was like you could picture it in your mind rather than have to create a whole world yourself. Mm. I think that's quite soothing. Mm. Such as you mentioned Lord of the Rings. I couldn't really get into the first Lord of the Rings. But then I saw the film and afterwards I read the next two books because I had something to sort of ground me as a teenager that it was like, Mm. ah, it's these characters who I understand what they look like. Had the second and third films come out at that point? Or you were just like, ah, I want to read ahead now? No, (laughs) I literally read ahead because I enjoyed the first film so much. I was fully sold on the world. And as far as I remember, the first book, I did try to reread it because I thought, as a grown-up, I'm not going to be scared by the the riders. I'm a brave grown-up now. Um, And I just couldn't get past the first bit where they describe hobbits for ages. I just, it was just boring. Brilliant. Um, I think we're going to swap around, if that's okay. So I am going to talk about uh, art today. During lockdown, I've been reading Louvre, Guide de Visite. Why did I choose it? The world is very complicated right now and I wanted to um, read a picture book. I did, however, read the pictures in Francais because, of course, that is more authentic. You can't see this, but helpfully on the front cover, they have provided you with your own set of creepy eyes to follow you around the room. So today I'd like to share with you all the things I have learned about art from the very beginning of time up until page 86, which is as far as I've got at the moment. In the beginning, people were not very good at art, which is why we keep their work in museums instead of galleries. In fact, Egyptians didn't even have galleries. Instead, they put their art in tombs, which would get a one-star review from me on TripAdvisor. It's not a quirky venue in a hotel. It's just creepy. They actually believed if they weren't drawn correctly in their tombs, they wouldn't appear correctly in the afterlife. I mean, to be fair, they're absolute morons. That's obviously not true, but it is what they believe. And I guess if you're an Egyptian, it would be awkward to turn up in the underworld with three legs or a tail. Or imagine how gutted you'd be if you'd been promised paradise with a thousand virgins and you rock up with a fig leaf instead of a dick. Now, you might think this is an abhorrent conflation of different beliefs and religions and cultures and history, but that just shows me that you have not properly studied the great work Wikipedia. Moving on, we get to the Greeks. They realised they didn't have to show everything, thus inventing foreshortening. Wow. Everyone's always impressed by foreshortening. It's an art term which means very little to anyone unless you realise that instead of drawing parties like the Egyptian dance move, showing every part of the body face on, now you can draw dancing like basically just like any dad dancing. Moving their hands, very awkward, basically not like Egyptians anymore. Which is a big moment for dads everywhere. The flip side is that the Greeks also wanted to make the perfect figure, which is a bad moment for dad bods everywhere. Dad bods remained criminally unrepresented and marginalised until we started valuing pictures of kings in the later centuries. The Greeks basically made art that looked like Instagram, enhanced, unrealistic, and with crap hashtags. Seriously, if you look closer at the Venus de Milo, the artist has etched hashtag blessed by the gods. Then the Romans came along and copied all the Greek stuff, but pretended it was theirs. So it's a lot like the internet today. 
When the Roman Empire collapsed, after years of Tory underinvestment and poor quality building materials, Christianity became the big dog in the art world. And also just in the whole world, Christianity was actually a pretty global fad. I don't know how much you know about Christianity already, but they really managed to make some pretty big arguments. When you were a kid, did you ever get back a little bit late and your mum was taking none of your excuses and it got to like 1am and she was still absolutely going at it and so you thought, you're so through with her shit that you decide to pack your bags, leave home and form a new religion. We've all been there. And Christianity did this all the time. Why is this relevant to us? Because of course there was a big fight about pictures. Some important Christian people liked pictures. Some other important Christian people didn't like pictures. Just like the classic Avril Lavigne song, you know, there were some priests. There were also priests. Can I make it any more obvious? They had a big fight because the priest's friends didn't want them to see each other. And now Avril Lavigne's just kind of weighing in on what is objectively not her issue. Some of you might not know Avril Lavigne because of the translation issues. She is better known to us as April the Vine. At the end of the day, or many, many days because it's history, it was begrudgingly agreed that you wouldn't burn in hell with the devil or be burnt at the stake by real people if you used art to spread the word of God. Why couldn't they have just spread the word of God by writing it and burn fewer people, you might ask? Great question. Unfortunately, no one could read. Reading for poor people was yet to be invented. Now, you may think that art from the Middle Ages looks bad or crap or certainly not worth the cost of entry, Geraldine, and you are entitled to your wrong opinion. Before you even think about looking at painting, you are legally obliged to read the 502-page pocketbook edition of E.H. Gombrich's classic work, The Story of Art. Upon completion, you will automatically receive your art viewing license. But reading ahead today, what Gombridge says about artists in the Middle Ages is quite beautiful and in many ways liberating. They used images only, he says, as a means to tell a story, compared to those airhead Greeks who just wanted to see the perfect image of a perfect body. So the inspiring message from the Middle Ages is, it doesn't matter if your dress is made of cardboard, whether you exist in space or time, or even if you have any limbs, it's your story that counts. These artists just wanted to tell a good story, provided that story is about Jesus. And that's what it says on page 86. Uh, and I'm sure a bunch of stuff happened in the art world after the Middle Ages, like maybe the Renaissance and the Remodernism. But that will have to wait until I've looked at some of the other pictures. Thank you very much for listening. Very good. Uh, my first question is, what was your favourite out of Egyptian, Greeks, Romans, Christian art and Middle Ages art? It's really a toss up between Egyptian and Middle Ages because both of them look look absolutely bonkers. If you look at Egyptian art, they yeah. properly try to represent everything, but they don't have any sense of perspective yet. In fact, it's after the Middle Ages that they kind of work out what perspective is. Mm, yeah, just between Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And it's just so funny how they like get everything in. So like Egyptians, if you look at the uh, pictures of people, they have two either left or two right feet Yeah, because... That's how you draw feet. Yes. So at some point in my life, I've like read up about hieroglyphics. I don't know why, but I tried to figure out hieroglyphics. I've lived a rock and roll life. Deal with it. <laughs> I make no apologies. Um, but I feel like there was something about like feet pointing in one direction means that it's about someone who's deceased and feet pointing in the other direction means it's about someone who's alive at the time of the story or something like that. Wow. Um, but I may, cool. I may just be totally making that up. No, but that's kind of the delightful thing about pictures, but you do need to have like done some reading about it is the, the kind of messages behind. Because we see so many pictures in galleries and you look at them and you go, oh, that's a nice picture. I like it. I don't like it. But unless you have this kind of key to like what was happening historically at the time, why this was painted, information like that about the Egyptians, that unlocks so much, doesn't it? 
yeah as in um why was this painted is more interesting they're very seldom trying to go this is an accurate scene that i was looking at Mm. although perhaps the older you go back such as the egyptians they are trying to recreate a scene and tell a story sometimes create like an actual scene they're trying to create like the world for it to be recreated in death whereas i feel like nowadays people do want to create a scene often because we've got photography perhaps because we can trap a scene in a way that wasn't possible before or people more interested in capturing the passing of time i don't know i like you referred to it as photography to trap a scene (laughs) you know you're you're clearly someone who grew up without a television (laughs) i have caught these pictures and made them move on my talking noisy box in the corner people did believe that though when photography was yeah. invented oh, yeah, absolutely. they believed they would trap their soul or something i mean it also did take quite a long time so it plausibly was yeah. trapping their soul i don't know yeah old photography was a very slow process with pinhole cameras and such i've also made a pinhole camera no really well not a lot of people know this but i did a foundation diploma in art before i did a film degree I didn't know that you know i've lived some crazy tales making pinhole cameras uh, doing life drawing that kind of thing textiles one week as well so i learned how to use a sewing machine i make no apologies for the lifestyle i've lived but yeah i made a pinhole camera and it's a really ridiculous way to make a camera nowadays but mm. it's quite interesting um i wouldn't be able to make one now like i can't remember the process so i'm not mm. sure what the point was other than learning this is where it all began for cameras i think for a long time i thought a pinhole camera was just like a really tiny camera yeah it sounds like it doesn't it like it's yeah. saying uh, you want to take a tiny photo use this tiny for camera. Ants. yeah <laughs> back to the egyptians a question mm. about that maybe no one has an answer for that they're creating a scene but also they're like this guy is a god he's got the head of a dog that's just how it is okay he's got the head of a dog this one's got the head of a big bird this one just a guy with the sort of sun around his head they're gods where do they come into the art That's a very good question. I didn't read anything about that. I just read about stuff on tombs. I guess probably they're to do with um, making the journey to the afterlife, I guess. But the problem is, is this book is massive. Mm. Well, actually, I lied in the thing. I'm reading another book about art as well. So the the E.H. Combridge book is massive and the Louvre book is not very massive and in French. So we're fucked. But the E.H. Combridge one, even though it's massive, it covers the whole of history like it goes from pre-egyptians from things like cave paintings and like i don't know if you know about the sargonic dynasty in Ur, like mesopotamia and stuff like that i haven't covered it on either my art or film uh <laughs> studies if i'm honest with you There's a gap. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm shocked as you are that's a reading genre to look into next year for this year even i have a further question about the egyptians you reference someone imhotep mm-hmm. is imhotep a real person Good question. He's the one from The Mummy. Yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) A film reference does not get by me, you see. (laughs) I will look this up, but I think he was a genuine person. Well, it says Imhotep architect. Yeah, he's an Egyptian chancellor to the pharaoh. Nice. Real guy. The Mummy is great. I haven't seen it in years. Is there a book of it, though? No, I don't think so. I think it's exclusively a film and then sequels as well. The second... No, the first equal has Dwayne The Rock Johnson in before he was like a mega, mega star. Yeah, before Moana. Oh, yeah. Before he absolutely <laughs> smashed out of the park, singing and rapping his way through Moana. I watched Moana the other day. I watched it on Boxing Day and I cried for two and a half hours. You don't need any reason to watch Moana. Forget all the art you've read about in these books. Moana tops them all, quite mm. frankly. It's amazing. I watched Soul. Have you seen Soul? 
Oh God. The problem is I'm so pregnant at the moment that I don't think I could bear yeah. something that's that emotional. My friend keeps telling me I should watch it. And then someone else was like, you should definitely not watch this in your state. Yeah, I think you should probably not watch it. If Moana broke you, then Soul will break you. <laughs> but also, is it as good as Moana? No, it's not. Just watch Moana again. Moana is flawless. Okay. Well, that's a really... I did watch the trailer and I loved the design of the beings. I they're think they're quite cool. arty. Yeah. I hadn't seen any trailers for it or anything. I didn't even mm. really know what the plot was. And I thought it was like, okay, but... I mean, I'm being aggressively marketed it. After yeah. watching Moana and watching a trailer for it, every time I go on any social media, it's like, they you know. probably want to watch Soul. <laughs> I don't have a like... You know when you can like report ads, they don't have an option for like, I'm too <laughs> pregnant to watch this right now. Yeah. Please, Disney, don't make me cry. It's not... <laughs> Yeah. not a genuine complaint it might go into labor or like existential crisis i think if you said i might go into labor they'd only market it harder at you as well <laughs> they they want that tagline of this made a woman go into labor <laughs> yeah and also get the kids early yeah what were you watching the moment that you came into the world yeah oh god yeah and that like would fit with this the theme as well as yes. far as i understand yeah it would Thank you so much for joining us, James Crawley. Uh, where can people find you if they want to hear more of your comedy? Thank you for having me. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at James Crawley. The only reason I persevere with it is because I've got that handle. I'm also on Facebook and such and such. And I've recently made a podcast of my own, which Sony had a couple of episodes because there was two lockdowns and a Christmas. But it's called Conversations with a Vicar, in which I ask questions of a friend of mine who's a vicar that people have sent in. You should check that out if you like the sound of my voice. I really enjoyed it. Um, I don't have a specific religious feeling, but I am interested in religion. Yeah, it's not meant to be for Christians who know all the stuff that he's going to answer. It's about, oh, what does he think about this? And sometimes it's very silly things, and sometimes it's quite big questions. Mm. You had a conversation on the first one about um, uh, clothing and why people wear certain clothing as vicars or why they don't. And I think I wrote an essay when <laughs> at uni about how it's kind of a costume and how you can use these things. And I, I just found that really interesting. Yeah. So you too have lived a wild life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you very much, James Corley, for joining us. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.